Uh, it's my privilege this morning to speak about um, a subject called church government. <laughs> Um, I don't think a single one of you woke up this morning and said, oh, 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 could I have a sermon on church government? But hopefully God will bless this and this will become uh, important and good for you. Who here, when you, when you hear the, the, the phrase church government, when you hear that, how a church should be organized, how a church should uh, uh, be put together by way of its government, uh, I'm going to give away a book here. Who here finds themselves intrigued genuinely at some level, a scale of one to ten, at least a three, uh, interested in this subject? Who, who would say, I, I find myself interested in this subject? Okay, I see this. Okay, good. All right. Now, uh, let's think here. Okay, so um, let me see all those hands again. Okay, oh, look at it. Okay, okay, good. Whose birthday is closest to today? Today's November 6th. Is that you, Joe? November? Anybody? We have a what? What? A month ago, Joe Boyer, a book on what it means to be Presbyterian. <laughs> there you go, brother. There you go. You might sense I'm a little biased. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beauty of laughter in a church that we can just enjoy each other and uh, have fellowship together. Father, thank you for the remarkable moment we have. Father, I enjoy speaking. It's, it's, it's a fun thing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's fun to put together your thoughts. And, but Father, I pray that um, people will all have a sense that you are here and you are present and it's your word, not mine. So with uh, humility, I cry out to you that your voice would be clear, your authority would be beautiful, and we would receive the Word of God today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, today is a message about a controversy in the church. Uh, were you quite shocked when you heard that uh, statement that uh, some were teaching that one needs to keep the law of Moses in order to be a Christian? Uh, that's pretty stunning news. Um, and uh, the, the issue in Acts chapter 15 is assembly of the church in order to deal with this controversy. And so uh, I want to look at that today, but I also want to acknowledge that we come to this moment in our life with a history uh, as uh, Americans, and our view of uh, the church has been shaped uh, by our culture. And uh, the United States is a unique experiment in, uh, in government. Uh, most of world history is... Uh, Government is defined by uh, kings and queens, uh, tyrants, um, dictators. Um, and the United States uh, had a different idea when it came to our government. <clears throat> and uh, we'll be praying for our country this coming Tuesday that uh, 
First and foremost, the whatever transition of government goes on, it will be done peacefully, and uh, pray for the church's influence uh, to that end. But America, uh, from around the 1780s to around 1830, experienced a great deal of change. And what happened was there were different Christian groups and denominations, and they'll kind of be left unsaid. But they took off out of the East Coast cities like Philadelphia and New York and these big cities, and they moved into the frontier. Now, that wasn't necessarily like something like, you know, the Wild West, as you think, but mostly like just moving east hundreds of miles. And uh, these were sincere people who wanted to see um, the church grow. Um, and what was left behind were the stodgy groups like the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, and the Episcopalians. They were slow-moving. They were very careful. Those groups were very careful when they laid their hands on a minister and ordained that individual. They wanted to make sure the person had sufficient doctrinal training and understanding of, uh, of church history, of uh, a, a, an adequate training. Many of those groups I'd mentioned were involved in the establishment of seminaries, schools, such as Harvard and others, really to train ministers. So those stodgy old groups were kind of behind the eight ball, as it were, or slow to move. Now, there were other groups that were very excited and fast-moving. They met in barns. They met in open fields. And some of those who uh, were leading those different groups were had a low view of church government, and they had a, a high view of their own creativity. And so they, uh, they did away with many of the uh, traditions and practices of the church, and some of these preachers uh, were almost illiterate. And their, uh, for instance, their grammar was rather poor. But when they met farmers out there in the frontier, the farmers sort of enjoyed that because this guy talks like me. So what developed over time, I don't think this was... Uh, I don't know if it's that intentional. What developed over time was a very sharp anti-intellectualism and a very strong anti-authority spirit, anti-authoritarianism, and particularly directed at sort of established clergy. And I, let's say, I, I put it in the first person here, I've been given a Bible uh, who is the church to tell me how to interpret this? Uh, it's just me and my Bible. The Bible alone, no creeds, but Christ. I don't know if you ever, ever, ever kind of heard this kind of sense, this, this feel. Now, uh, this wasn't happening in Germany. <laughs> this is happening in the frontiers of the United States. Now, these were some creative practices that began to shape American evangelicalism. We love, as Americans, the term rugged individualism, right? 
That's sort of that's us. Um, and the idea of the common man, okay, the common man, that, that's an American theme. And there's many good things politic politically about that, but that political sentiment began to merge with ecclesiology, America's understanding of the church, anti-authority, or you describe this as a low view of the church. And so these practices have actually continued to today. Um, it, these practices have impacted the worship of the American evangelical church. And in a word, you could say that popular, popular, popular ideas, things that would appeal to the, the people, are put as a high priority. So it's not uncommon, for instance, on a Super Bowl Sunday, um, at least churches that have uh, pastors with great influence who can talk to the quarterback of the Super Bowl team and get him to sign a football, uh, this actually happens, <clears throat> that the pastor on Super Bowl Sunday stands in front of the crowd and yells out, who wants a football? And right in front of everyone, a football is thrown out into the audience. That's a popular technique. Now, um, it may, may you feel a little uncomfortable if I'm a, a, a critical of, a, of, of another church's practice, but um, these are the kinds of things, the popular methodologies that accompany the American spirit in relationship to received authority. This means that we would like to start all over anew and afresh in our understanding of what Christianity is. And particularly when it comes to a government over me. In other words, an ecclesiastical, a church structure in which I am to conform, I am to promise to further the purity and peace of the church. I am under authority. As Americans, this is a, a bit of a challenge. And the, this sentiment that existed in American evangelicalism prior to the 1960s, this sentiment got a, a reboot in the 1960s because the 1960s was anti-government, uh, it was high experiential uh, in, in its way of living, um, and it was really the triumph of the, of the individual will. And so uh, many churches actually uh, came out of the spirit of the 60s, and they had a low view of church government and a high view of you and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. So we are going to be on the opposite end of that today. We are going to be uh, looking at a text that I think is really remarkable and beautiful. The text is uh, a moment in church history where the church is going to deal with a great threat to the gospel. 
The great threat of the gospel is how does a person access salvation? Is it by sheer faith alone in Jesus? Or is there something to be added to that? That's it. Is it sheer faith alone in Jesus and all that he is and all that he does for us? Or is there something else I must do to become more acceptable to God? So you can, uh, the shorthand for this is um, you, can, uh, you can detect legalism whenever you hear Jesus is okay, but uh, 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 <clears throat> Jesus is good, but, and then you suddenly, now no one would be probably so crass as to say it that way, but we need to be very careful and God in his care for us has given us an extension of his kingdom in heaven down here on earth through the officers of the church in order to care for the church. Acts 15 is a remarkable moment in the church when elders have come from various places in the New Testament area and they have been appointed to come and to speak and deliberate here in Jerusalem and they are dealing with the issue of Jewish Christians, actually of the Pharisee party, I have no idea how that developed, the Pharisee party within the church who are adamant that you just can't have Jesus alone received by faith. These pagans are going to just ruin godliness and holiness and uh, they are, you, you just can't. You have to regulate them. And the best regulation for their behavior is the ceremonial laws, the civil laws, the laws, 613, by the way, the laws that we grew up with as Jews, that's the only thing that will ever regulate their behavior. So, uh, for the, the care and protection of the gospel God has assembled his church. Okay? His church is assembled by representatives. By representatives. These have been set-apart men in the church who are elders, and at this time they're also apostles. And they are going to deliberate on this matter. Okay. So here's what happens. Peter is the first one to speak. And he speaks about his experience with a Gentile man, though he doesn't mention him by name. He refers to that conversion of Cornelius that Peter saw in Cornelius' house. Peter visits by God's direction, by God's leading, a Gentile conversion. Peter sees it along with six of his Jewish companions, see this. It is a mini-Pentecost. It is done in the style of Pentecost. In other words, they saw the Holy Spirit come upon these people. We don't fully know exactly what that may have looked like. It was probably identical to Acts chapter 2. And they see that these people, these non-Jews, 
are brought to faith in Christ in the identical way that the Spirit fell on, in, on the day of Pentecost. Peter then reports this at this general assembly of the church. And Peter emphasizes that God was making a choice. Notice verse 7. God is making a choice among you. And then look at verse 8. God bore witness to them. Peter's argument is that the pace setter is God himself. The one that we are following into Gentile territory is God himself. God is providing evidence that he is seeking the non-Jews. God is purifying them, washing them by faith in the blood of Jesus, and he is giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't be more pure than that. No matter what diet regulations you may have grown up as a Jew, whatever prohibitions you may have had with your diet or the way you dress or the way you conduct yourself, there is no way that your behavior as a Jew can ever match being cleansed by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is driving home a remarkably clear point. God is the pace setter, and he's put forth evidence of what his plans are. He plans to receive the Gentiles by faith. Peter says, I saw this. And then he says in verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? That language comes from the Exodus experience into the wilderness and when they various times, put God to the test. God was leading them through the wilderness. God was leading them to the edge of, of the promised land. God was showing them the giants in the land. Yes, God was promising he would be with them and that the land would be taken. And they put God to the test, meaning they refused to follow God's leading. And they folded their arms, and they said, we are wiser than God. There's quite a dramatic moment here in Jerusalem, isn't it? <laughs> so Peter says, why are we putting God to test, or why are you putting God to the test? Then in verse 13, oh, excuse me, then we have Paul and Barnabas uh, providing uh, some illustrations. Look at verse 12. Then all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. More evidence of God's leading, more evidence of God's conversion of the Gentiles. So they come along and they give vivid illustrations. Again, now we're moving, we're moving further north, we're moving quite a ways away from Jerusalem, and God is active up here. Now, after they finished speaking, now this is the half-brother of Jesus. Look at verse 13. James, 
uh, he refers to Simeon, which is Peter. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now, verse 16, just follow me, and I'll read just part of this. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now, let me explain this. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is watching the deliberations, and uh, he's thinking. He may have been thinking about this prior to this uh, moment, but he's thinking. And he gets to this beautiful, big-picture moment. So we have God expanding the kingdom into Gentile territory, James is thinking. Wasn't one of the great promises of the Old Testament that God would put another one of David's sons on the, on the throne? And wouldn't that son of David be instrumental in rebuilding David's, David's kingdom? Wouldn't there be a restoration of all that God planned in David? Let me back up. David was about 1,000 B.C., and in Israel's history, it was the golden era of kings. David had his problems, but David became the model or the paradigm of what a good king was. He was the standard. Now, under David and under Solomon's reign, a couple things happened. David took care of the enemies of Israel. He pushed them back, and he expanded the borders. He was a good king for this, really for this single reason. He was a good king because uh, we as farmers could get on with the farming of our lands and not have to look over our shoulder and worry about some invading group. Really, a pretty simple job for a king. Secure the borders and provide peace for your people. David. Can't get any better than David. So what happens, though, is that David's family, all his, his sons, his descendants, are somewhat of a mess. And uh, there aren't many good ones. And in fact, they are blamed. David's house, at times, is actually blamed for some troubles that Israel falls into. So what God does is in, in uh, the prophet Amos, chapter 9, verse 11, God does this. He says, well, the house of David has fallen apart. It's fallen into ruins. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rebuild that. And part of the rebuilding will be this. It will not just include Jews. The rebuilding of David's kingdom will include the world. How about that for a vision? The rebuilding of the final David who is going to come, it's going to include a remnant of God's people that will expand far beyond the borders. But this final David will be one like David who expands the borders of the kingdom. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, is sitting around listening to Peter, and he's listening to Paul and Barnabas, and he says, wait a minute, 
wait a minute. This is the fulfillment. The idea that Gentiles are being included in the kingdom. The idea that the kingdom is expanding into new territory. This is the fulfillment of what the prophets were longing for. That God would rebuild the house of David through the final David. And where is that final David? He is in heaven reigning right now. It's happening now in the ascension of Jesus. He was coronated as the final son of David over the new and final kingdom that he will make. And it's happening. And so with remarkable clarity, James applies Amos 9 and Jeremiah and some other quotes from Isaiah and says it's all happening now. The final David, this is evidence. Here it is. This is evidence that the final David is enthroned. The conversion of his enemies. How does Jesus conquer his enemies? He converts them. How about that? It's pretty cool. That's how God is declaring war against us. He comes at us as a king. He doesn't come at us as anything else. He, we serve a king who has, is, and by the way, this is a little redundant, he's a sovereign king. <laughs> His, he doesn't just, doesn't just have power. He has absolute power. And he comes, and as the book of Acts, I would love to have this like on a, about the size of a, I don't know, a, about a five by eight foot thing, and I'd love to see a New Testament map with little tiny five watt bulbs on it, all over it, right? And it starts off black, we dim the room out, right? Starts out black, and, and then uh, we have a little five watt bulb, bing, the Ethiopian eunuch converted, and then boom, there are conversions in Judea. And then it gets right the board, the, all, the board's all black over here. And then we start seeing conversions up in Antioch. And then we see conversions on Saul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. And this dark black board and this dark foreboding. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, the eye of Sauron. And, anyway, so, and this, and this whole black board is looking. And, and then it, it just it starts ding, 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 ding. Lydia and Philippi, ding. And it's. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, and by the way, that little tiny kingdom called Rome, boom, it's just a big 100-watt bulb. Thousands of conversions. James says, the king, the king we are all waiting for is on the throne. And how do we know he's on the throne? Because Gentiles are believing in him. He's converting his enemies, like he did with us. And he's giving them the Holy Spirit. So, so then James goes on and says, you know, we do need to give some practical advice and direction to these Gentiles. They come out of a lifestyle of sexual immorality. They come out of a lifestyle of preparing meat and foods differently than Jews. And James makes a comment toward the end here of our passage. He says, you know, Jews are everywhere. The synagogues are everywhere. And there's going to be Jew Gentiles sitting together in worship, enjoying uh, dinners together and life together. And so he gives these four prescriptions uh, for their behavior. Please, please be sensitive and careful with your conduct. And so you have these four prescriptions you can read about there. What happened at the first assembly of the church? 
The first assembly of the church was a protection, a theological protection of the church from legalism. The last thing the New Testament needed was another legalistic church. Those are all around the place. Those are, those are, those are, those are not unique. So in this remarkable assembly, we have the protection of the church. Now, here's what we really believe. Uh, as the Presbyterian church, here's really what, what's going, going on, then I'm gonna, I'll be done. Uh, John Calvin is the one who began to observe, wait a minute, there are representatives, there are representatives coming from various places in, in the known world there, and they are meeting as appointed representatives. So the assembly, assembly was those who were appointed to be there. They had a right to speak there. And Calvin's the one who began to see that, wait a minute, there really has been always an attempt to have the church as one. So the Ephesians are connected to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians are connected to the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch is connected to the church in Jerusalem. We pray, by the way, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Now, in heaven, is there one church? Yeah, that's right. Now, someone once remarked that denominations are sort of like what we do to zoo animals. We, we put them in cages so they won't kill each other, right? So denominations are important so we won't kill each other. Uh, being a little facetious there. Um, but I would argue that, uh, obviously, I'm a Presbyterian minister, and so I am all in on this. I used to think that there really wasn't any clear guidance in the Bible. I used to think, oh, I don't know, it's hard to say, I don't know, you know, it's really kind of hard. In fact, there's some people who say there's really even no guidance on worship itself. And it's just kind of loose and everything. And the more I've been thinking about this, the more I realize that God appoints elders in the church to express his care for his people, his love for his people. Fallible, recovering sinners who are officers in the church. We really believe that Jesus is king and he is in session, as it were. In other words, it's really happening, that he's really king. And the Presbyterian Church takes that seriously such that it even calls the gathering of the elders the session. And so it is for the order and beauty of the church. And let me give you uh, quickly a couple of illustrations of this. I think you, if you're a member of this church, you have a right to an orderly church. Okay? You have a right to it. I'll give you a couple examples. When I was in seminary, I was part of a Presbyterian church. It was an OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that doesn't stand for Old People's Church um, or the only pure church. So, so as Marianne and I were part of that church, and we had a congregational meeting suddenly announced uh, on an evening, an evening and Sunday. So we all showed up, and everyone was there. Now, this is for the care and for the love of the people. The pastor came, and he represented the decision of the elders. Okay? So the elders had deliberated, and the elders had come to a conclusion on a matter, and then they represented this to the people. 
just like Acts 15. They deliberated and they came to a conclusion. And by the way, the conclusion is not just a suggestion. It's really coming with authority. So the pastor stood and said, we have received the repentance of this young woman who's come back from college, and we all knew her, and she came back from college pregnant. Now, he gave a wonderful presentation, loving representation of the elders receiving of her repentance. And we were told, uh, after she gave testimony, she actually gave testimony of, uh, of, of, her, of her repentance. And uh, of course, there's not a dry eye in the room because we can all relate to sin. And the pastor required us to not hold her sin against her. Right? So you have a teenage daughter or children, and you're driving home from church that night. By the way, you don't need, don't need any books on sex ed. Don't need any explanations, you see. Your children understand the fear of the Lord. Your children understand the importance of marriage. In other words, God has corrected someone who fell into sin, and we can all be caught in sin. And God restored the person to the fellowship of the church under the leadership of the elders. Another man, another individual stood up in front of the church and he was crying. And uh, he had embezzled $10,000 from his employer. He had confessed to it and he the news was going to hit the Orlando, Orlando Sentinel the next morning of what happened. Now, you as a member of the church have a right to an orderly church. The outsider is always criticizing the church because, you know, they're a bunch of sinners, but they won't admit it. We have to admit we're sinners before they do. So this man stood and confessed his sin to the elders, and the pastor stood representing him, having deliberated, and having received his confession, and the pastor told us to not hold his sin against him. He was going to go to jail, and he did go to jail for one year. And the church rallied around his family, and provided food and financial support during that hard time for that family. Now, we all drove home that night. Say, oh, those are, those are important things that life in the church should be peace, as peaceful as possible under the care and love of the elders. Isn't that good, though? Isn't that good? It's restorative grace. See? Restorative grace. All the words in the church are meant to restore people. That's what we are about. And so uh, the church was saved here in Acts 15 of a, uh, of a terrible, terrible thing. And of course, this doesn't prevent the church from falling into legalisms and uh, going, uh, going off track. And the church is always reforming, going back to Scripture and being corrected uh, and, and kept back on track. So today we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we think about Jesus who took upon him really the, well, the, the covenant that Adam received from God. Jesus became the second Adam, and upon Jesus, um, all the curses 
that were to fall upon an anti-authoritarian spirit, which Adam embraced, all that was to fall upon Adam uh, fell upon Jesus. Jesus took upon him the chastisement that was due to us. And we have now been placed under his gentle and loving authority. And when Jesus said that if you destroy this, temp- this body in three, day- in three days, I will raise it up, he intended to, in his body, raised and ascended in glory to establish a new kingdom. And if you, by faith, are part of that kingdom, he loves you very much all the way to eternity. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the protection and love of the church. We pray that the church could be peaceful. We pray that you would be uh, kind to us, extend to us your rule. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. Feed us now, Lord, as we take of these elements. Help us to further submit to your kindness and to your rule in our life. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.